0: Don't Miss a Beat is a podcast series brought to you by the law firm of Saul Ewing, Arnstein & Lear that covers views from diverse constituencies within the food, beverage, and agribusiness, also known as FBA, sector. Hosted by Jonathan Havens and Kermit Nash, co-chairs of the firm's FBA group, episode guests offer various perspectives on a variety of legal, policy, and industry developments, day-to-day FBA issues, best practices, and the road ahead. thank you for joining us for today's episode of Don't Miss a Beat, Saul Ewing, Arnstein and Lear's Food, Beverage, and Agribusiness Podcast. My name is Jonathan Havens, and I'm the co-chair of both the firm's food, bev, and agribusiness practice, as well as its cannabis law practice, and I'm based in our Baltimore and Washington, D.C. offices. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by my friend and partner, Jen Beidel, co-chair of Saul Ewing's White Collar and Government Enforcement Practice Group. Jen is a trial lawyer and former federal prosecutor who represents organizations and individuals in white collar criminal defense cases, internal investigations, corporate compliance matters, and complex commercial disputes. She draws on her extensive trial and investigative experience in both the public and private sectors to assist clients facing criminal and civil investigations of fraud and other misconduct in the healthcare, life sciences, food and agriculture, and financial services industries, among many others. Jen, thanks so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. It would be uh, great to hear from you about, you know, a little bit more about you and your background.
1: Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I'm happy to be here today. So as you said, I'm the co-chair of the firm's white collar and government enforcement practice group. I come to the firm with experience as a federal prosecutor in the Southern District of New York where I prosecuted a wide variety of cases, mostly in the fraud and cybercrime space across a number of industries. Uh, In terms of food and agriculture, I also bring to the table, having grown up on a farm in central Pennsylvania, and I've gotten an undergraduate degree in agriculture. I thought I was going to go to vet school. And I'm one of those folks who changed course and went to law school for the opportunities it uh, provided. And, and I find myself practicing white collar law, but I'm always happy when that intersects with food and agriculture, which is where my passion is.
0: That's great. We're very glad that you had that career shift. i uh, very glad for the opportunity to work together. So The focus of conversations could be on internal investigations. And, you know, something that you and I talked about offline is, you know, internal investigations apply to a wide variety of industries, right? Whether someone's in manufacturing, whether they're in technology, whether they're in food, beverage, and agribusiness, life sciences, whatever industry, internal investigations are are present, can be present. But, you know, I think the focus of today's conversation is internal investigations through the lens of food, beverage, and agribusiness. We'll get into why that topic in a few minutes, and I think it'll be apparent to our listeners. But before we we get into the weeds, can you talk a little bit about, first of all, what is an internal investigation? And at a high level, some of the factors that should be considered when a company is formulating an internal investigation plan.
1: So an internal investigation is designed to uncover the facts and circumstances around an issue that's been flagged as a concern for whatever company and for whatever reason. At a high level, the first thing you want to consider is what the goal is of your investigation. Sometimes the goal is deciding an appropriate employment context consequence for an individual, or otherwise changing internal controls, but not in a way that impacts compliance with federal or state regulations. That's sort of one track. Where though you're in a heavily regulated industry like food and agribusiness can be, you need to consider at the outset of an internal investigation what your end goal is. You're typically trying to determine whether there's been some violation of a regulation, and if so, how persistent that violation is. Is it isolated to one person? Uh, Has the conduct stopped, or is it a persistent concern throughout a business unit or even broader than that? And if you uncover those types of concerns, how then will you report them to whatever the appropriate regulatory body is to get the right outcome? So first high-level factor is what's the end goal? If it's purely internal, that's one set of concerns. If it could be externally and government-facing, that's another set of concerns.
0: That's great. So you know, one of the things you teed up is something that I really wanted us to talk about, which is regulatory requirements, reporting requirements, compliance requirements, any, anything under the heading of what is something you are required to do by a set of regulations that govern your industry, your organization, so on and so forth. So you know, I'm thinking of kind of a, a hypothetical whereby, and we've dealt with this with clients before, where there's a reporting requirement. You know, Someone got sick eating your product or you, know, you noticed a manufacturing deviation. It's very feasible that someone who is being investigated or who should have done something and didn't um, is going to be, you know, a fact witness or the subject of the investigation. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, how you approach that or what you recommend doing if, in fact, in-house counsel is a fact witness or the subject of the investigation that you're conducting?
1: Sure. So in terms of scoping the investigation, which is something you need to do at the outset, You need to look for any potential conflicts between the control group that's running the investigation internally and the witnesses you need to speak with. If, for example, in a hypothetical scenario, the general counsel has been involved in some preliminary steps of an investigation or maybe has advised an employee on what to do or what not to do, then the counsel doing the investigation, whether that's in-house or external, would need to report their results to someone other than the general counsel because you don't wanna be in a scenario where you've now given the fact witness more information than they otherwise had. You want that fact witness to stay pure in their personal knowledge so that that's all they are required to share with a government regulator or whomever the audience is later. Um, You also want to think through at every step how best to keep the information you're investigating privileged and within the control of the organization until such time as you decide intentionally to give that information to someone else. There can be a lot of reasons to decide to make information external. It could be for a PR reason. Maybe the issue has already become public and the organization wants to rebut that with the story that they've uncovered through this investigation. It might be that you're required to report. It might be that you want to report to avoid worse consequences. There are a lot of federal regulators that have policies that say they will reward companies who come forward and blow the whistle on themselves essentially and say, we've had this aberrational conduct. We've put compliance programs in place to prevent it, but we want to reveal to you that this is what happened.
0: That's great. So you talked about privilege and a lot of clients will ask us, when do we reduce something to writing? When should we have conversations over the phone? Who should be present? Should there be witnesses? So maybe briefly, if you could touch on, you know, how would you go about determining whether to do an oral or written investigation and and to whom you provide it? You mentioned a little bit on the second part about to whom you provide it and why, but maybe just the written versus oral aspect of an investigation
1: might be helpful. Right, so the best thing I can tell you on all of those questions is, In every investigation, you need to have a discussion about those questions and make an intentional decision. The only wrong decision is a decision that happens by default. So there's no set of rules that fits every set of facts. You need to look at your particular set of facts and say, will this particular circumstance become public eventually? If so, do we want every aspect of the investigation to become public? or do we wanna just tailor maybe an executive summary? That's what we will release. And if we're gonna just release an executive summary, maybe we don't reduce everything else to writing at all. And we just create a small control group of individuals who speak with counsel orally about what will become reduced into that written report. So once you reduce everything to writing, The cat is essentially out of the bag i guess i should use the horses out of the barn on an (laughs) agriculture podcast but once you write it you have to think through the scenario that it privilege could be waived as to everything written there including fact witness statements and so if you write it you have to be prepared that that could become a public document or at least a government-facing document at some point and so you wanna have put every possible thought into that decision before you get there.
0: That's great. I, I think there's this fear that, and it's well-founded, right? Because people are familiar with litigation and discoverable documents. When you reduce something to writing, it becomes discoverable. But I've also seen that go too far where someone says, I'm not gonna reduce something to writing because I'm so afraid of it being discovered. Well, that can sometimes I think shoot you know, an organization or a you know, person individually in the foot um, but it's it needs to be intentional, right? It can't just be willy-nilly.
1: Right, exactly. I think you typically want to at least have an executive summary or maybe a PowerPoint or an outline or something to go back to if this issue comes back to light two years from now, how do we guide the conversation back into this topic?
0: So speaking of of litigation, you know, one of the things that I know you've looked at quite a bit and helped clients with is what happens when you're dealing with a whistleblower. So let's shift the conversation if we could a little bit to, you know, best practices when an investigation is prompted by a whistleblower coming forward with, you know, some sort of allegation of wrongdoing.
1: Okay. So whistleblowers are human beings like everyone else, and they tend to be curious about the subject that they blew the whistle on. So there, it runs the gambit, really. You might have a whistleblower that calls a, a hotline or sends in an email and you never hear from them again, but more often what we see is that whistleblower becomes invested in the topic area and wants updates on what's happening, wants to sort of become in that control group of the investigation. But you have to remember that the whistleblower is a fact witness. So just like we discussed with the in-house counsel who may be a fact witness, you have to be careful not to give that whistleblower any additional information that they did not have prior to blowing the whistle on whatever the conduct is. That can be unsettling sometimes. Maybe the whistleblower is blowing the whistle on conduct that affects them personally, that's in their job duties, That. You know, they feel like they've been asked to do something inappropriate. It's not for the investigation team, though, to quell those concerns. Presumably there's HR or some other structure above this person that can separately deal with the employment consequences or aspects of whatever is going on. But in terms of the investigation, the whistleblower needs to be treated just like any other fact witness. What I tend to do is speak to the whistleblower as the first witness. They're the person who brought the issue to light. They tend to have at least enough facts to get you started in terms of scoping who else you need to speak with, what documents you need to collect, et cetera. But it is important at the outset of that conversation to try to build a rapport with the whistleblower while at the same time making clear to them that the information flow is really one way. I'm not going to be able to share with you the results of this investigation. If it's something that impacts you organizationally, you'll learn about that through your work. But unfortunately, I can't tell you about the outcome of the investigation. And usually that quells the concerns and stops the whistleblower from expecting more information than other witnesses might get.
0: Sure, and I think something that I see clients struggling with is when someone comes forward with an issue, a complaint, you know, uh, an allegation of wrongdoing. Everyone just wants to make things right as quickly as possible, so everyth- everyone can move on. And I see, you know, clients will offer someone, you know, maybe who just hasn't been brought into the fold, who doesn't really understand corporate communications and the importance of not saying more than you're authorized to say or should say. Um, and I think that's particularly true also in dealing with whistleblowers, right? I think it could go both ways. Someone could react very negatively, just be dismissive of the the whistleblower or be too accommodating. And so I think like with everything else we're talking about today, it's important to have a plan and a coordinated effort and not a shoot from the hip kind of strategy.
1: Absolutely. And I think it's important to have a plan that's flexible Every investigation plan I've ever worked on has had three or four or five rounds of edits over time because every witness you talk to, every set of documents you collect might lead to additional information. You might interact with the whistleblower and determine there's a slightly different way that you need to interact with this person than your typical. So there's sort of a way things are done, but you also need to be flexible enough to deviate from that if it's necessary for the individual investigation you're conducting
0: sure so i think my last kind of substantive question is you know look if you conduct an internal investigation maybe it doesn't turn up anything but maybe it does turn up something what if it turns up criminal conduct what then i mean where where do we go from here
1: so there's a variety of ways an investigation might turn up criminal conduct i recently conducted an investigation that turned up criminal conduct of an entirely external set of actors tangentially related to the company only. In that kind of scenario, the company is essentially like any citizen where you can, as a matter of your civic duty, go to the U.S. Attorney's Office or the DA or whomever and report that conduct. Those types of reports are always better done through a lawyer who's trained in the area because that office will be more receptive to a report received in a certain way that they're used to. Um, So that's sort of an optional report. If we're talking about existing in a heavily regulated space and you turn up a violation of those regulations by your company, then it's typically best to at least consider self-reporting that information to whomever the appropriate regulator is. Obviously, if you're going to engage in a self-report, you want to do that with someone who's trained in the particular regulator and the particular space so that you self-report in the way to get the best benefit. You also want to make sure that self-report is accurate, right? That's why doing a well-scoped investigation is important. The worst case scenario, I think, in self-reporting is to report some conduct that ends up becoming 5% or 10% of much broader conduct. That gets you in trouble where it might look like you intentionally reported only a small amount to avoid liability more broadly. You don't want the government to be in a scenario to uncover facts or circumstances or additional conduct that you did not self-report. So while it's attractive to go into an internal investigation and get it done quickly, you also want to make sure especially a scenario where there might be criminal conduct to report that it's scoped appropriately, and you don't have to necessarily run every lead to the ends of the earth, but you want to be sure that you've uncovered at least by topic area, the things that are of concern. So you can't later be accused of having attempted to hide some fact or circumstance from the government.
0: Sure. That's, that's great insight. And again, it, it is along the, the theme of something we were talking about a few minutes ago, people want to make problems go away quickly, but some of these problems, you, you can't make them go away quickly. And trying to do so could really come back to bite you. And I think your point about reporting when you are ready to report and understand all of the facts and circumstances or reasonably the facts and circumstances that are at your disposal is much better than going in, looking like you were trying to mislead and defeating the purpose of self-reporting in the first place, which is to show the government, the regulator, you know, the stakeholder that you know, something bad happened, but we're trying to make it better and here's how we're going to make it better.
1: Right. I mean, there absolutely can be circumstances where maybe your investigation runs parallel to the government's investigation. If something leaks and is in the media and you know they might be aware of it, you might go in and say, we're looking into this. We're going to report to you as we go on. This is what we know for now, but make it make clear that's not the full report. We're still working on this. So, again, this is something that isn't one size fits all but needs to be intentionally decided with every investigation.
0: Great. So I told you it would go fast. We're just about at the end of the episode. You know, I guess a couple of observations, um, you know, you keep me honest. If I miss the point on any of these, let me know. But it seems to me that one of the things, and I, I love your your statement of making decisions not by default, but, but intentionally. Um, you know, to me, that's one of the biggest takeaways here is that you need to have a plan for what you're doing. It cannot be uh, off the cuff when you're dealing with potential criminal issues, whistleblowers, regulatory violations, whatever you're talking about, misconduct of any kind or alleged misconduct, you really need to have a plan. You know, I guess in, in wrapping up, it sounds to me like, and this might be a little bit of a softball you know, kind of point or question is, an organization's far better served by having a plan that's been vetted before you're in crisis mode. Um, and you mentioned going through three, four, five drafts. Better to have the room to do that when you're not dealing with uh, alleged misconduct. But uh, I, I assume you agree with that. And maybe any, anything to add on having a plan and how to get a plan in place before you, you even need one?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think you hit the nail on the head with not doing these investigations by default. Certainly the more serious the potential outcome, the more planning that needs to go into what you're doing. And if you exist in a heavily regulated industry, it is a good idea at the outset to think through the three or four areas where you might have the most potential for running afoul of a regulation. There's always a set of regulations that impact any company or industry. And there's areas where you could talk to council about trends, compliance trends. What is the government looking into? And then you could think through before that crisis mode, what would we do if there was a concern in this area? Who are the stakeholders? Better yet, do we have the right compliance structure in place? Have we trained the folks in those areas on Uh, How they're supposed to be compliant so that when you get to the investigation phase, you've hopefully reduced the risk and also thought through your preliminary plan so you can get counsel or whomever is doing the investigation on board quickly and get them started and get to a government report as quickly as you can.
0: That's great. Well, that, uh, that about does it for today, Jen. Thank you so much. I always learn a lot uh, when we uh, record these episodes, but that's particularly true today. I think you gave very, very good advice and insight to, to our listeners. Um, and if anyone has any questions about internal investigations, developing a plan, please reach out to either one of us. Uh, we'd be more than happy to talk to you. And um, again, thank you so much to our listeners for tuning in for yet another episode. Please be sure to join us next time on Don't Miss a Beat. Listening to this episode of Don't Miss a Beat, brought to you by the law firm of Saul Ewing, Arnstein and Lear. Please be sure to subscribe to hear more podcast episodes related to developments in the food, beverage, and agriculture industry.